Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Mikhail Gorbachev, who ended the Cold War without bloodshed but failed to prevent the collapse of the Soviet Union, has died. Ireland, after dark, tonight we ask, how safe do you feel late at night here? And what more needs to be done to tackle rising incidents of criminality at night? Sometimes I am a bit scared. Like, I never have AirPods in or anything when I'm taking public transport at night because I just don't know what's going to happen. Soaring energy costs continue. We speak to business owner Geraldine Dolan, who was rocked with a €10,000 energy bill. As Naroc, this committee hears there's a similar risk of electricity blackouts in Ireland this year as there was last year. Fundamentally, there is a flaw in the market system. There is a flaw that the price of gas determines the price of electricity to the extent that it does. And yes, we do need to change. Public sector unions are to ballot their members on whether to accept a 6.5% pay increase over two years, with the Taoiseach describing the deal as fair. Well, I think it's a fair um, agreement. Um, I understand the difficulties and the challenges, uh, but this is a fair um, agreement. As always, join the conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. Tonight, former leader of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, has died, it's been announced. Uh, Mr Gorbachev, who ended the Cold War without bloodshed but failed to prevent the collapse of the Soviet Union, died at the age of 91. His efforts to democratise his country's political system and decentralise its economy led to the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991. And I want to get reaction from our panel now on this breaking news. Uh, Fine Gael's Neil Richmond joins us, as does People Before Profits' Breed Smith. Um, to you first, Neil, what legacy, I mean, a, a titan really in the world of politics and geopolitics, what legacy do you believe Mikhail Gorbachev leaves? Um, a massive figure who dominated global politics through the 80s and his legacy lives on. But I suppose the reflection I have is, given the state of Russia in the world now, I think we really could use a bit more perestroika and a bit more glasnost. OK, so that's in reference, of course, to the free speech that he endorsed in his, you know, that, that fight for, um, uh, I suppose, ending the Cold War. But as we are saying there, failing to prevent the collapse of the Soviet Union breed. Yeah, I think the collapse of the Soviet Union was was uh, inevitable anyway because of the economic um, pressures and competition on what was a, a basically a state capitalist society. Um, it reflected capitalism in everything except that it called itself socialist and it wasn't and it was due to collapse anyway. Um, just as an aside, my mother fancied him desperately. She thought he was gorgeous. Um, she's gone a long time now, but uh, he, he lived till a right old age. But um, I, I don't think that the... 
his um, perestroika or glasnost actually brought the, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union. That was inevitable, as I say, due to the economic um, pressures on a system that wasn't actually a socialist system and that was collapsing in on itself. And there will be, of course, much more reflection on the life and times of Mikhail Gorbachev, who, I say, as I say in breaking news, um, has died at the age of 91. Now to other news now and rising violence in our cities. Tonight we ask the question of how safe do you feel on the streets of Ireland at night? And a little earlier, Trish Lafferty took to the streets of Dublin to find out how the public feel about their safety at night and whether there's enough guard of visibility on our streets. I'm someone that does take public transport in the night because I finish work at like 11. And it's like really hard sometimes. I'm like looking behind my back like constantly like to see if someone's behind me. And because of the fact that it's like the roads are empty, there's not really anybody patrolling or anything, it is kind of worrying for me. I wouldn't feel safe walking around town on my own. Yeah, I'm a nurse. I see antisocial behaviour all the time. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, it can be hard to get the help that you require, even when there's a presence around. So, uh, I think they need more guardie in the streets. A lot of people, I feel safe myself, but a lot of people I know that, especially women, they don't feel safe enough like in town. Yeah, I suppose like more of a presence would be helpful, but at the same time I feel like it's it's just the same as it always was, you know? I definitely do think the streets would benefit from a greater guarder presence, um, particularly some areas of the inner city. Uh, there's been a real uh, increase in sort of um, uh, antisocial behaviour is really obvious over the last couple of months, yeah. I would, yeah. I feel like there was a period there during COVID when it was less busy and so I think there was a lot more people hanging around and that's when it was more unsafe. But I've been out a bit in the last year and I, I'd say it's kind of gone back to the way it was. Like, It's unsafe depending on where you go, kind of. I don't know, I think as a female especially, <laughs> like you just have to be extra cautious. You can't be on your phone. Your earphones can't be too loud. Like, I don't know, not all the time. I do use public transport, but I haven't seen any violence on it. No, not recently anyway, but um, I've heard stories, but that's about it. I, you'd see a lot of antisocial behaviour on darts and things, but just like gangs of teenagers, that kind of thing. You know, so sometimes I am a bit scared. Like I never have AirPods in or anything when I'm taking public transport at night because I just don't know what's going to happen. And there has been cases, not my own, where things do happen when you have your AirPods in, especially as a female, like you have them in and it's just like someone comes and snatches you and there's nothing you can really do. I have witnessed sort of um, interactions that are more chaotic and more threatening than I would have previously seen, particularly around the inner city. Yeah. Um, I think it would be um, advantageous to have a greater presence. Um, I wouldn't often see them around at night, but um, maybe they're there somewhere. <laughs> So I think in general, like overall, I think uh, more security is needed. Well, joining me here in the studio for more on this is journalist Mairead Cleary, criminologist Trina O'Connor, People Before Profit TD Breed-Smith and Fine Gael TD Neil Richmond. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, Mairead, to come to you first, you're a young woman, you're living in Dublin, but you have fears going out at night. You have fears even doing exercise at night. We heard from women um, just in that reaction we were getting from the streets. And what struck me is it was mostly women, I think, in that interview, yeah. primarily, who felt more at risk. Definitely. And when you mentioned exercise as well, like I live with two 
girls to women in their mid to early 20s. And the three of us, none of us have gym memberships. Our biggest form of exercise is running and walking. And thankfully, we live in an area near to Phoenix Park. But we've had the discussion in the apartment already about what are we going to do when the evenings get shorter? You know, that feeling of you're going to be able to run okay if you are willing to do it in the dark, number one. And number two, without any music in your ears so that you can tell who's behind you, who's around you and being aware of your of your surroundings. So I suppose it's just a sad state of affairs that there's three women in a house having that conversation in August, already dreading the shorter winter evenings. And, and what's made you so fearful? I suppose ugh, stories. I mean... I think that there has been a lot of crime, a lot of, I mean, there's been women who've been killed in these situations. You know, I, I, I think everyone has remembered Ashley Murphy when we talk about running yeah. um, and then just being so vulnerable at position. So I think that was probably something that really nailed it home. But a lot of people talk about their experiences on social media. So we see it all the time. We've experienced stuff ourselves. Um, you know, it can be something small. It can be someone saying something behind you. Smile, love something like that. Mm. And it just throws you off and it just makes you aware of eyes being on you and you're not comfortable in your stride. And that's something that's before there's alcohol involved in a night out or something like that. That's before it's a different scene, it's a di different atmosphere. This is a Tuesday evening at 8pm going for a run. Yeah, and anecdotally, we are hearing more stories. Now, maybe it's people are, are sharing their stories yeah. more as well. They're sharing their experiences. We've seen the images online when someone's been set upon on a night out. But do you think it's become, uh, especially in urban areas, maybe a, a more of a threat than it has in, in, in recent years? I'm not sure if it's become more of a threat, but I know that during COVID, I suppose, we all got used to being very cosy. There were no nights out, whereas now, I suppose... We're back into the, 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 the depths of it now. We're seeing that antisocial behaviour, reminding ourselves of what it's like. And I don't know if it's any way worse. Like you say, we're talking about it more on social media, so it might feel more prevalent. Um, I know for you know my friends my age, especially those who are women, we've had these conversations a dozen times. Um, and I'm sure those conversations were probably happening 20 years ago. I don't think it's a new problem, but why is the problem still existing? Um, Trina, I want to bring you in on this. Um, you're a criminologist, you're studying in this area. Um, from your perspective and your experience, do you think the problem, like antisocial behaviour, some call it, they say, you know, that's not a strong enough term for what we're seeing. It's criminality on our streets. Do you think that there's a sense that it, it has worsened, that people feel more, less at ease and more threatened at night? Yeah, I, I think people do feel more threatened. And I think that it, it, it is criminal behaviour, but it's also toxic masculinity. Um, when you see a vulnerable woman to interfere with her when she's out for a jog, when did that become acceptable? Because 20 years ago, that wouldn't have been acceptable. Why is that acceptable now? And I've heard some terrible stories of people on public transport where people have been fearful, their children have witnessed antisocial behaviour. People are afraid to, to tackle people because you don't know if they're carrying they could be carrying a knife, they could be carrying a screwdriver, whatever it is. So I suppose what we need to be asking in a broader sense is where is this escalation of violence come from? Because it's criminal violence and it's making people feel very unsafe. And where do you think it is coming from? Well, I think when we look back and we saw in, around the crash that time, we saw a hollowing out of services for young people. And mm. I think that we're reaping what we sow now. Mm. And if you hollow out services, then you're going to see upticks in things like antisocial behaviour, violence, drug use. And a lot of the things that we're experiencing now are people, a lot of the time, are using drugs or um, on a night out using alcohol. We also have to talk about the social construction of the communities that they come from as well. 
and the trauma within them communities that's intergenerational. So I suppose what, what we really need to be doing is looking at bringing funding back up for social uh, care, for community programmes, for all of these different initiatives, mm -hmm. because the World Health Organisation will tell us for every euro that we invest in early intervention, we save four euros to the Exchequer. Yeah. Um uh, Neil, to come to you on this, like when we've heard Mairead's story and her sense of fear living in the city centre right beside Phoenix Park and, and that sense that, you know, you can't even go for a jog at night. It's a sorry state of affairs, isn't it? But her story is actually reflective of how many people feel from what we've been hearing in our response that we got when we put that question out on the streets this evening. Yeah, it's not unique. It's a discussion I have with my wife. I'll go out for a run at nine o'clock, she won't. And then in turn, I'm now conscious of I'm going out for a run at nine o'clock and there's a couple of ladies going for a walk. My impression is, well, how do I not project that I'm literally just going out for a run and I'm not a threat? And it goes both ways and it's completely unacceptable. And one of the things that I've worked very hard on the last year with Councillor Kenneth Egan is the creation of the Community Safety Innovation Fund, which is a new fund. It's taking the money that's been seized from criminals, 16 million euro in 2021, and driving that into source, into the communities that have been most devastated by crime. So we've had 120 applications for that new fund. It was only passed in the budget last year. 120 applications from groups, from organisations, that services were, as you were rightly said, through the crash, were, were taken away, sadly. But now we can use that money. And what I think is really important, the money is being taken off criminals. As I said, 16 million euros seized in cash, but also from the Criminal Assets Bureau and driven back. But in turn, as was rightly said in the report, some people are saying, like, maybe it's going back to normal. Back to normal isn't good enough. We do need to see more Gardaí on the beat. We've seen 800 Gardaí recruited this year, but crucially 400 civilian staff, because we want to see Gardaí taken out from behind the desks and onto the streets of Dublin. Look, why the hasn't new... that happened? Like, you're, you're sitting here, I suppose, as a TD within a government party and you're saying we need to see that. It's not just you saying that, it's Drew Harris, it's the guard, the commissioner saying we need more guard, we need them for all aspects of, of policing, seen but we need to see more visibility as well. We, we so why isn't it the, happening? Well, if you look at Operation Citizen, Claire, and the, the periods that it was taken a year apart, so Operation Citizen ran last, um, last October where it was guardy on the street, we actually could compare the crime figures a year apart and we did see crime reduce across every type of crime across all the regions, all the districts in the Dublin policing. What we're additionally seeing that's just come on stream is Operation Saul. This is high visibility policing on our public transport. Just yesterday in my office, I had a phone call in from a lady who at four o'clock, people were talking about after dark, at four o'clock was abused and attacked on the Lewis leaving town. It's completely And where was the protection for her? And this is the point. We're seeing Operation Sol is only just rolling out and what I've been calling for in the doll and what I'll do... So this, it hasn't rolled out yet? It's in the process of being rolling out, but we need to see the resources. That's why we need to see the yeah. more increase of the guard. You know and we are seeing resources increasing steadily. Yeah. But what me and all of my colleagues have been saying for the last year is it needs to be quicker. We need to get the rostering right in Garda Shia But crucially, it's not just policing. It goes back yes. to tackling okay. that Okay, I want to bring Breed in else. here because, you know, you're saying we need to do this and, and but, but arguably... Some this should have been done. done. I mean, Some I think the calls for, for transport it's, it's important police to, have been but it is important there for years. Some things are being done, but if we all agree that they're not being done quick enough, we have to keep pushing. So there's no point me coming on Breed, and saying they're being done. Read your reaction, your reaction to that and to the government response and what people feel is a rising threat in our streets, a feeling, a lack of safety uh, on, on our streets for women and for men. Well, first of all, I want to totally agree with Trina's analysis of the lack of uh, funding in the communities for the structures, for youth, for families, 
for drug abusers, for alcoholics, the lack of funding for that is absolutely key to this. And communities have been stripped of those services. Jordan Austerity, Michael Noonan, um, previous minister of Fine Gael, finance minister, had a name for it. He called it pulling the low-hanging fruit. And the low-hanging fruit were the family resource projects, the youth centres, the traveller education budget, the uh, addiction budget, and that, that has never been fully restored. I mean, I work in a community where they're crying out for funds for all of these things, and it isn't coming from the drug funding. And, and do you it believe that it's certainly it, it, not coming your, fast enough? Uh, your basic sentiment on this, Breed, is if those services were all there, you would not see this level of antisocial behaviour and it helps criminality. Hugely. It helps on hugely our to have outreach workers from youth services to go and work with and tackle um, the, the behaviour of children on the streets. Uh, it helps hugely to have services for people who are falling into addiction, who are suffering from it. And there's a correlation, and this is not a sociological peculiarity to Ireland, it's global. There's a correlation between levels of poverty and deprivation mm. and levels of, uh, of antisocial behaviour or violence, whatever you want to call it. And but the, the and question of more and more Gardaí, And they do take time to build up again, Breed. So well, actually... What I'm thinking is, just in the short term, uh, for people, you know watching tonight, people who feel, who feel as many do, that they can't really enjoy a night out, that they're fearful that they won't be able to get home safely, that there needs to be stronger law and order on the streets to tackle that. Well, I have to say, it's not in my experience that the people around me feel that they, they're not safe going out for a meal or going to the cinema or going out for a drink or whatever. It's definitely not in my direct experience, but I'm only Breed Smith. Um, but having more Gardaí is not going to help the women and you, you and you in your apartment run through the Phoenix Park unless we're going to put Gardaí behind the trees mm. and in the Furry Glen and stuff. That's not the point. Um, uh, uh, that sense of uh, lack of safety is, it can be anecdotal, it can be contagious. People can talk about it and therefore there's an element of contagion mm. to it. But I do think that um, mm. going for a run and all that, doing it together is, is, is obviously much yeah. safer, particularly in the dark. But can I just make a, an observation on your Vox Pop? There was quite a number of women of colour who expressed a lack of safety, a feeling of lack of safety. And maybe that's something to do with racism as well mm. and the rise of racism uh, in our society. And that too needs and to be And attacks that we have seen growing attacks on, on, on minorities. Um, Marie, to bring something Breed said in there, she didn't personally feel it. Um, she doesn't personally feel threatened, but that's not obviously everyone's story. From your perspective, yeah. do you think if there were more Gardaí or the idea if they were, you know, lining uh, Phoenix Park, now it is Garda HQ uh, there, ironically yeah. enough, but um, that that would make you feel safer? Or, or what do you think is the solution? I think we need to not just think about law and order, think of the resources. Phoenix Park has really old lanterns. We're just using Phoenix Park as an example. It's not well lit. So that's one thing that could be easily managed. Mm. Um, number two, safer nights out, more taxis, later buses. Like, there's more than just putting more guards on the street that can solve the problem. I think that should be considered. Yeah, Absolutely. it's a good point. On a very practical measure, it's all about safe spaces, isn't it, Neil? And people will say, and it's not just a Dublin issue, but right around the country, that there isn't enough investment and that sense that you, 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 you will be safe or you can get safely home or you're in a well-lit place. Like, attacks happen. Yeah, in the dark. No, attacks happen. We are seeing, obviously, upgrading, upgrading of public lighting. I agree there should be more. We are seeing more late-night public transport. We have the 24-hour bus, say the 15, going out to my own constituency. But what I call for is we have the late-night Lewis at Christmas time, but why didn't we have it on St. Patrick's weekend with two bank holidays? We need to have 24-hour public transport. And why don't transport. we? 
Well, I put it to the NTA and they didn't say that they felt it was necessary. Yeah, the NTA, that's the National Transport Authority, National Transport also Authority. say we don't need a transport police. So, like, who's making the calls here? Well, transport police, <clears throat> that is a call for Angarda Siakona. And I raised this with uh, the commissioner and I said, look, we use the traffic police model. We have it. It's operated out of Phoenix Park for transport creep police across Dublin, surely we could do it for public transport. Mm. And again, that's something that is operational. That, that's again back to maybe a recruitment and a, and a manpower issue. Yeah. Trina, you want to Claire, we, we've had issues on public transport for a number of years. We've had stabbings as far back as 2012. The safest people on public transport are the drivers. The, the passengers need to feel safe also. If we truly want to deal with antisocial, violent behaviour in our towns, in our villages, we need to look at the causes because violence is a symptom of what's going on for people. Mm. So we need to invest heavily and do what they did in Scotland when they turned their violence situation around, when they introduced a violence reduction unit, where they had youth workers that were navigators that worked with on Garda Khan, where they, where they um, with the police force in, in the UK, where they had traffic police, mm. where they had all these outreach workers who went out and supported young people. And, and just finally, sorry, Claire, just finally, what is there for young people to do on the weekends? Mm. Drinking and that culture is all that's on offer. If you're not involved in GAA or soccer, what is there to, for you to do on the weekend? I just want to pick up briefly on something that I think uh, Neil would be a proponent of, and that's introducing mandatory minimum sentences um, to protect, say, Garthi and frontline workers from rising assaults they're seeing. Do you think there needs to be a change in the court structure in sentencing as a general deterrent to criminality? I, I definitely think if somebody's doing a job like a fireman or a guard or a nurse or any, a fire, um, any of these roles, that sentencing needs to be very harsh when it comes to interfering with them in their role. But and, and more generally in the public? Well, well, I think more generally what we need to be dealing with is stopping the violence and the mm. antisocial behaviour before it happens. But definitely, if you interfere with somebody that's a guardian of the peace or providing a service like that, we have to, we have to come down hard. All right, OK, there we leave it. My thanks to Mairead and to Trina. Neil and Breed will be staying on with me. And after the break, shock for business owner Geraldine Dolan after receiving a €10,000 energy bill. Welcome back. We're now returning to the news that former Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev, who ended the Cold War, has died at the age of 91. But for more on this, Washington correspondent Simon Marks joins us now. And Simon, I take it there's been swift reaction to this news that's uh, uh, developing tonight or that, we, that is confirmed tonight about the death of Mikhail Gorbachev, who, as you're there as Washington correspondent as well, it was his forging um, deals with the United States and partnerships with Western Power that powers that will be part of form a big part. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Of his legacy. Yeah, absolutely. There is an entire generation of American politic, uh, politicians, including, of course, President Joe Biden, who were so deeply influenced by Mikhail Gorbachev's rise to prominence. Uh, the fact that he took over from a, a whole series of sclerotic, aging Soviet leaders and with vim, vigor and youth uh, introduced those concepts of perestroika and glasnost, restructuring and openness that he saw initially as an effort to reform the Soviet Union in order to save it, but of course ultimately became a nail in the Soviet Union's coffin because he was unable to control the pent-up demand for change from inside the country. Uh, and news of his death here, which will undoubtedly uh, spark, I think, a fulsome tribute from President Biden in the hours ahead, comes of course at such an extraordinary moment in history when the relationship between the United States and Russia particularly, but the East and the West, is so filled with tensions as a result of Vladimir Putin's decision to go to war in Ukraine, that when you look back on the events of the 1990s with Gorbachev at the helm uh, in uh, Moscow, uh, you can only conclude that what seemed to be a glimpse of opportunity for a warmer and brighter future uh, has absolutely now uh, disappeared uh, and seems like not much more than a, a very brief blink in time. Yeah, and the vision he had, and I suppose where it's come to today. Simon, from your point of view, you worked in Moscow in the 90s and you interviewed Mikhail Gorbachev. How did you find him? How did you find him on a personal level? Claire, I should, should say that I did not hear that question, uh, but just to answer the question that I think you asked me, uh, I mean, I was based in Moscow in the uh, early 1990s. I had an opportunity to interview Mikhail Gorbachev after he left office when he was running a think tank. Uh, I mean, he was the most extraordinary charismatic man. He would grip you by the arm, look you deep in the eye and assure you that despite the the fact that he'd been outmaneuvered uh, by hardliners with his own part within his own party uh, and by the Russian leader Boris Yeltsin, he would go to his grave always a communist. I mean, there were extraordinary moments when he was in power and visited Washington, alighting from his motorcade, walking down Connecticut Avenue, just blocks from the White House and mingling with American passers-by. There'd never been a moment like that in terms of superpower relations. And for all all Gorbachev's many faults, he delivered that chance that now seems to uh, have been so badly squandered over uh, the course of the last uh, 20 years with Putin at the helm. OK, Simon Marks joining us from Washington tonight. Thank you for that. Now, back home again in other news. Uh, there was shock and anger in County Westmeath today for one business owner who said she was left speechless after receiving an electricity bill for almost €10,000 this week. Geraldine Dolan, who runs Poppyfields Cafe in Athlone, joins me now via Skype. And Geraldine, your reaction when that bill came through the door? Disbelief completely. How can you have a bill like that after 73 days? It was just over the two-month period. 
73 days, a two-month period, and yet a bill for €10,000. Now, to put this in a little bit of context, what, what was a, the, a, the previous bill? What did that look like? What were you paying um, sort of per unit price were you paying before this bill landed? The previous bill to that was 2370 The unit price would have been 1499 per unit. It's now at €45.89 per unit. That's an incredible rise. I mean, there there are people who are so fearful and already, as we've just heard from you, very high bills have come through this summer. They're really fearful of what's coming down the line. Um, you had you had uh, just uh, so people know you had a business account with them, um, Iberdrola, and it pulled out of the market, which which yeah. changed everything for you as well. But in no way it did you expect everything. this this price rise or or you would have expected some protection? Some protection because we didn't have any choice of moving to Electric Ireland. That became, because Erdebrola left, we were automatically put on to Electric Ireland. So we didn't have any choice in the rate. Now my contract is up tomorrow, 1st of September, which is a subcontract because it was done the way it was. So I will be looking for a better rate, but I'm talking to a, an energy broker and there's not much better choices out there. Are you going to pay it? I don't know that answer yet. I mean, the fear is that if you're used to a bill of, you know, and many small businesses up and down the country will know about this, but uh, if you're used to a bill of, of something around 2,000 euro, not cheap to begin with, and yeah. then you're, you're looking at nearly 10,000 euro, uh, for many businesses, it's simply unaffordable. The problem is, if you don't pay it, can you then get with another energy company? I mean, I've been talking to the energy broker and he's trying to sort something out for me or see, can I talk to Electric Ireland? But I can't get to talk to them. Um, I've emailed them, I've tweeted them, I've texted them. I've, I'm not getting anything back from them, at least if I could talk to them and negotiate a payment. Yeah, and, and listen, thanks for that, Geraldine. We're going to discuss this more with our panel because I think many people will be interested. Best best of luck with that, and I do hope it works out for you. Thanks, and thank you for bringing us your story um, tonight. Um, we are going to talk about this ongoing energy crisis, and I'm joined here in studio now by Professor in Energy Economics, Lisa Ryan, Irish Times journalist Mark Paul, uh, People Before Profit TD, Breed Smith is still with me, as is Fine Gael's Neil Richmond, and CEO of his mate, Neil MacDonald, um, is with me also tonight. You're very welcome along to the programme. Uh, Neil, on this, we, we've just heard Geraldine's story there. Uh, many businesses are in a similar position. Hers is somewhat a little different because of Iberdrola pulling out of the market, but there would have been many people who maybe were also had taken up account with, with um, um, this energy firm who will be similarly worried and worried about the increases that are already coming down the line. It, it, that's correct, Claire. And um, Iberdrola represents a very small part of the domestic and the commercial market. Um, uh, but wh whether she was with Iberdrola or not, the fact is that the energy companies are not offering uh, deals at the moment. Um, and where someone wants to switch, where a commercial uh, business is switching, they've been asked for two months cash up front. So we, we've had cases like that. So the, the chances are if she, if Geraldine wanted to move, she'd be asked for 10,000 euro up front before she would be quoted for another price. So it's quite extraordinary what's going on at the moment. Yeah. Neil Richmond, is that right? 
No, it's absolutely not right, unfortunately. Well, she doesn't know what her rights are, what, what she can do. She may be in that position that she's going to have to pay that up. It's huge. And not only that, but she's just one of many businesses who are very fearful of the bills that are, <coughs> that are coming in. Absolutely, the and, they're, the and they're contacting my office on a daily basis, both in the same sector and many other sectors, small, medium and large businesses. And one thing that we have to see is we've heard talk from Ursula von der Leyen today. She spoke with Taoiseach on the phone about emergency EU intervention in relation to energy pricing. Mm. This is a key focus because collectively when the EU act on this, there is a chance of some movement as part of this wider global crisis. And that's certainly where that focus has to be for the next few days. Yeah, um, Lisa, just on this to bring you in and to explain all this, because we keep hearing that actually the price that you're paying, the breakdown of that, it's actually really quite complex or why we are paying more at this time, how we are different to the UK market, what the European model is, because that's what's kind of being discussed. Um, can you explain it in, in fairly simple terms to people tonight? Yes, well, of course, I mean, there's a few things happening here and that's what makes it so complex at the moment. If we look at electricity, 50% of our electricity is generated from natural gas. Natural gas prices have gone through the roof. They've, gone, they've increased tenfold in the last two years. So when, when that happens, it means that if you're generating electricity from gas, of course, the price goes up. And the way the electricity market is designed, and it was designed to be an efficient market, and it normally was quite efficient until we had these crazy high prices, um, the highest price on the market, which is the gas price at the moment, determines the price for everybody else. So unfortunately, when you have an extremely high wholesale price of gas in the market and therefore the electricity price, it means that all the other generators get paid that high price as well, which of course gets passed on then to the retailer. So, so it, it doesn't said, matter about all the re renewables you may have in the world. And, you know, we're, we're not bad when it comes to other countries on sort of wind energy and, and what we have to offer to generate electricity. That makes no odds. Well, it does in the sense that if you have more um, wind generating, then you'll have less gas in the system. So, you know, you'll have fewer hours in the day where you're dependent on gas. But at the moment, we've had a summer where we've had very low uh, wind, which mm. is normal in the summertime, but it's been particularly low. And now we're heading into winter. So normally we can expect that wind is going to increase. But, um, you know, it's, it's not, you can't be sure exactly. So that's what the worry is in terms of what's going to happen. Gas prices are, are forecast to continue to rise. So that problem is going to remain there. Mm. And unfortunately, forward prices, which is how the gas generators usually buy their, they usually buy their gas six months ahead. Um, and they look like they're still very high. So this is the problem. So we have to start looking at how we can reduce our electricity use really overall. Right. Um, I, I, like, I wonder, Mark Paul, when we've heard about Ursula von der Leyen's um, comments on this European plan, um, to, you know, to change up and to, to maybe, you know, decouple <coughs> gas, I think, markets from electricity, what sort of difference will that make short term for people this winter and in the coming weeks? Well, look, it's, I, I think it's unlikely that any plan that Europe comes up with um, will be in place and implemented quickly enough in order to save businesses and, mm. and, and consumers from the hardship they're going to face this winter. Um, I mean, I spoke to a, a restaurant owner in Dublin today whose bill has quadrupled. Um, and he was on a, a, a fixed rate uh, two-year contract and that ran out um, at the beginning of the summer. And the first bill that he got on his new contract was four times higher. Um, so there's, there's actually, we've got two separate energy crises at the moment. One is a price crisis. And then the other one, of course, um, is in relation to the state of our grid um, and, and, and the fact that the power could run out. And if, if you think about the economic damage that's been done by price rises um, um, it's, and kind of businesses are squeezed on both sides because consumers will run out of disposable income to spend on businesses. But then if the lights go out as well for certain businesses, if you can just imagine the economic damage that will be wrought by that, um, factories shutting down. Now, look, it's, it's, it's not necessarily... Um, 
hugely likely that this is going to happen, but it is a possibility. It is a significant risk, mm. um, um, the, 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 the regulator says. It could happen. And if you have businesses like, I mean, poultry processors that have to have um, um, fuel to keep um, um, the chicks warm in, in, in the shed yeah. or, or, or other businesses, um, it would do huge, huge damage um, um, to Ireland's economy. Uh, Breed, we certainly heard that today, you know, from the, the CEO of Airgrid who said, you know, it, the risk is similar to that of last year around blackouts. And it's certainly heightened because of this squeeze on our energy supply this year. That's a frightening prospect. Do you think that it's something the government could do more about or should be able to control more? Well, absolutely. I mean, we had quite a debate today on the question of where is the squeeze coming from? And one of the things that Eamon Ryan just did not acknowledge in his entire introduction was that 14% of the national grid is soaked up by data centres and that is set to surge because eight mega data centres have an agreement to connect to the national grid over the next two years using up 1.5 gigawatts of energy, which is absolutely massive. And in the meantime, it's not just businesses and chicken producers and all the rest of it that are suffering. The possibility of blackouts and the threat of that, it's also workers, families, hospitals, schools. Yeah. And I think the government has to priori prioritise the small businesses, the farmers, mm -hmm. the workers, the homes over the data centres and make an intervention that says we will not go down this insane road and connect any more of them. Uh, Lisa, your thoughts on data centres and there is that criticism that at a time of an energy crisis, we simply shouldn't be, well, allowing planning for more and there's certainly they should be coming up with their own plans and their own backup in order to try and save our supply this winter. Would you agree that, that, that that's, that is a good option and that is the only option now this winter to try and just secure our supply? Well, I think um, the data centres certainly are increasingly, you know, using more and more electricity, as a, are forming a higher share of electricity mm. uh, in the system. I think that for this winter, though, those that are on the system, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to get rid of them. So, and I think it's foreseen that there will be an increase in data centres, and th but that's up to 2030. In the, in the next year, there won't be that much of an increase. Mm. At, in the meantime, what we can think about, our research in UCD is looking at how can we harness data centres so that, for example, the excess heat could be used for uh, district heating, for example. They can all, they're also being required to have their own generators and even to make connections with their own renewable energy. So there could be ways where we could start to make it an opportunity. And they are the extra large users that yeah. the CRU is now targeting with their <clears throat> new plans to reduce the demand. Yeah, you would think they would have, uh, an, a plan like that would have, you know, been proposed earlier, really, because it seems like a, a sustainable model. But short term, could that be implemented pretty quickly and provide some sort of stability? Yeah, my understanding is that data centres, they have a pretty steady uh, energy demand throughout the day, but they do have capability to reduce at certain times if they're required to do so. And that's something that companies don't like doing very much, but it's something that they can be required to do and it's something that can be done quite quickly, in fact. Um, uh, Neil, I just, I, I want to ask about, you know, Eamon Ryan's position today. He talked about uh, a plan to combat energy poverty set to be published shortly um, after September's budget and that public consultation and all of that will be drawn in. Is that going to happen quickly? Is there a timeline on that? I don't have a timeline at this stage, but it has to happen quickly. And I think we're going to see quite like clear we've measures. We've been talking about this for four months now, no, months been, and months. We've been talking about it and there's been work ongoing for months. You know, I've seen the studies in South Dublin when it's data centres reusing to reheat. I remember that even back when I was in the local authority and where we're seeing that come into place. But when it comes to the budget, 
in, it's only a matter of weeks mm -hmm. away at this stage. The preparation is all going in that the key focus of the bu budget will of course be tackling more widely cost of living, but as part of that is energy, and as part of that of course is housing provision. Uh, Neil, when you hear what Neil has to say about, you know, there's a lot to consider, I suppose, in the upcoming budget, what would your main demands be, you know, when you're representing small businesses and what you really need now in terms of reassurances or help over the coming months? Well, uh, a couple of things. For, firstly, and um, uh, to, to reiter reiterate the point on data centres, we've seen the demand coming for data centres for a long time. We're part of an ICT economy we're going to have data centres. We identified uh, energy uh, capacity as an issue in Ireland's first national risk assessment in 2014. The difficulty for us is we haven't actually followed through with the actions that were dictated by that. As to what we do in Budget 2023, um, you, you know, the sort of business that you saw with Geraldine there uh, and those kind of cost increases in a small service business, her options are limited if she's going to continue to trade. She's e either going to, you know, reduce the labour cost in her business, which is going to hurt the workers, or she's going to charge higher prices to her customers. So what we're going to need to see to combat that is this is the sort of initiative, for, for example, in Greece now, there's a direct to SME subsidy of 60 cent per kilowatt hour um, coming this, uh, this winter, and for large businesses of 30 cent per kilowatt hour. In, in Germany, they've re reduced the VAT on gas from 19 to 7%. So, so they're, they're quite major uh, price shifts. Uh, for consumers and they're the sorts of things we would like to see prioritised so that um, service businesses, manufacturers, food producers are not actually passing those costs on to consumers. OK, we'll have to leave that there. My thanks uh, to Lisa, who joined us to discuss um, the energy crisis and bring her expertise to the panel. Uh, the rest of the panel will be back after the break to discuss public sector pay. So stay with us. Welcome back. Public sector unions are to ballot their members on whether to accept a 6.5% pay increase over two years. Taoiseach Micheál Martin has said a pay deal offered to public sector workers is a fair one that he hopes it will be accepted by union members. And my panel has stayed with me to discuss this and Mark Paul on this. Certainly while, you know, good rumbling so far, as in th this was something that the unions came out with themselves after all those talks, it's certainly not a done deal. No, it's not a done deal. I mean, I mean, they still have to uh, put it to their members. And, you know, there are certain unions that are more um, militant or, or bullshy than others. Um, and so maybe they'll vote it down. 6.5% um, over two years. Um, and, and there's also a separate 2% to come from the last pay deal. So a lot of public servants um, from today, in two years' time, they'll be getting paid 8.5% more. Now, a lot of workers in the private sector, I think, will be looking at that enviously um, and they won't get it. Um, it, it a lot of workers at the moment, with inflation so high, they're, they're basically eating real wage cuts, the likes of which we haven't seen since the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009. In the private sector, the real wage cuts that we're seeing now are actually more than what we saw mm. during that crisis. And you kind of wonder how sustainable that is for how long that can happen in, a, in, in a, a period where businesses are crying out for staff. I just think it's going to lead, eventually something's got to give, like a rope it's going to snap at some stage and something will give eventually in that. Reid, what do you think of that argument? 
that, well, you know, while the public, while it will amount to around 8.5% or certainly 8% and we're hearing that, you know, lower paid workers will benefit more, that's what the Congress of Trade Unions are saying, um, in benefit, in, in, in favour of taking this deal, but that you're not seeing similar, not likely to see similar pay rises in the private sector to match that. Well, it's a good argument for workers in the private sector to join unions. However, having said that, um, I don't think it's good enough because inflation is running at over 9% and is due to go up higher. And inflation in certain sectors like rents, energy, for definite energy, and we just talked about it earlier, and the, the profit gouging that's going on with the energy companies and the rising uh, wages to CEOs and the billionaires in this country, there's a huge disconnect between what's happening to workers and what's happening to those at the top of society. So I, don't, I also think that is a bit of a myth about public sector workers being cushioned and being paid more. The latest CSO figures show that private sector workers are actually on average paid a bit more. Now, that's the average out. But you look at certain sectors, sections of the private mm. sector, like hospitality, and they're paid very, very poorly. So, I, first of all, I don't think it's enough. It's not enough for nurses, for the teachers, for the low-paid civil servants. I think they should ballot against it. But I also think it's a okay. good argument for private sector uh, workers to join unions, to get somebody fighting for them, to get wage increases, to fight inflation. Isn't that what workers should do in the private sector? Join the unions and demand pay rises from employers such as yourselves, Neil? Absolutely. Uh, I, I think um, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the notion that uh, those 85% of the workforce that's in the private sector, a, a great many of whom are actually unionised, are getting paid 27% less than those in the public sector. Uh, and, and the only... Shouldn't they... Sh I mean, isn't the argument that just because we've got this huge discrepancy, surely then pri private sector workers should be paid more? Not that and, public and, sector workers and, and this is the, shouldn't this is the, get the pay rise. Th this is the mantra all the time, Claire. but where, do, where does that 27% income increase come from? Neil? Well, I think if you look at the breakdown of what is made up of the public sector workforce and the private sector workforce, you can dig through an element of it. But I, to get back to the key part of this issue, I do think this is a fair offer. I think it's a good offer, but a pay rise alone... What do you think, though, of what uh, you know, Neil had to say there? Where does the money come from, say, from an employer point of view? But also, I think there are employers, there are businesses making money, there are profits being made. The economy, we're told, is in good shape. The economy is in good shape and it's been managed well considering we faced a pandemic the like the world hasn't seen for a century and that's why we're in a position to make a very generous and fair offer to public sector workers but equally what we want to see in the budget in the next couple of weeks is a tax package for all workers public and private sector that will put more money back in their pockets and allow them to tackle all those rising costs of living as well. Uh, Mark, on that, you know, with the T's and C's that the unions are saying, going, yes, look, we may be in favour of this, but we're going to have to see what comes out of the budget um, in terms of those additional cost of living measures. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the trade unions don't actually have to decide um, on the, the public sector pay deal until 10 days after the budget has been delivered. So they'll have they'll have a week and a half um, to digest the budget. And yet they want cost of living measures. They, they, they want the government um, to invest, to spend on these measures. But look, there isn't a magic porridge pot either, you know. I mean, Ireland doesn't have unlimited resources. I mean, um, there, it's almost per head in this country, national debt is almost 50 grand for every man, woman and child in this country. But what about um, the huge recruitment issue I guess we're seeing in the area of, like, nursing with teachers? That, and, you know, we, we saw that recently in reports over the weekend. They simply can't recruit teachers because they can't pay rent in urban areas 
and, and everything is costing so much. But those key services, they're vital that people get paid properly for the job they're doing. They, they are, but we have just come out of a pandemic where, where the state used up all of its fat. It used up all of its resources to try and um, subsidise wages and to try and help people through that. Did there's it, not, there's not an awful, Did it, there, There's not an awful well, lot we left. We used up the rainy day fund. That's taken. It's still there, but it's empty. We borrowed uh, on a European level, on an Irish level, yeah. like never before. The world did. We faced a pandemic. I think, I think it's important that these negotiations took place on the basis of the cost of okay. living crisis and people need to get out in the streets and right. fight this crisis and join well, unions and put it okay, up to the government. Great. The money we is there. Leave it. My thanks. That, that's it from all of us here. Uh, Kira Doherty will be here tomorrow night, but for me and all the late team, good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.